What we learned, and this carries forward to today in so many different aspects, but what we learned was, one, the federal government really didn't control that many documents in the closing package, right? There's not that many promulgated forms, you know, the LE, the CD type of things, but a majority of the documents that you see in a closing package or any type of loan package aren't dictated by federal government or necessarily state regulations. Some of them are, but not all of them. And so we started thinking about what is it that we're trying to solve for? We're trying to solve for the amount of information that's being delivered to a consumer at the closing table all at once. Think of a better way of delivering information to a consumer. Hey, y'all, this is Eunice Garcia, the producer here at a Housing News Podcast. And today we get to hear a conversation between our CEO, Clayton Collins, and Brian Webster, president of Notary Cam. We get to hear about Brian's incredible background that leads from Freddie Mac to the CFPB to Wells Fargo and then to the fintech ecosystem. Brian talks about the impact he's had on the industry through his role in the development of TRID, how he thinks about M&A and corporate strategy, and how the right leadership approach can accelerate growth and business outcomes for tech and lending leaders. Clayton also gets to geek out in this episode, and his passion for innovation and deal-making comes through while listening and learning from Brian. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's the 10-year anniversary of our Rising Stars Awards program, where we spotlight and recognize some of the most impactful leaders in housing under 40 since 2014. Nominations for the 2023 The 10-Year Anniversary class end this Friday, and you can enter by going to housingwire.com and clicking on HW Rising Stars under the Awards and Rankings tab. Good luck! All right, Brian, as I was prepping for our conversation today, I started taking some notes on your career path and um, I realized quickly, I'm not going to be able to to do this justice from um, from the, the Navy to Freddie to the CFPB. And I'm going to stop there because your, your path goes deeper with multiple lenders. And this is all before we even get to the mortgage technology space that you're you're focused on today. Tell us about how you migrated from the Navy into the mortgage industry and, you know, kind of how your career has evolved and, and flowed over, over the, over the years. Yeah. It, it, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting path and journey to get here. And I you know, consider myself extremely fortunate, you know, very, very fortunate. I've um, met and had the opportunity to work with some great people that have helped kind of my career move along. But it's interesting. It started, you know, so I was stationed in Hawaii in the Navy. I did my last four years of the Navy station at Pearl Harbor. Was an extra in the filming of the movie Pearl Harbor. Met people that uh, got me to volunteer at the Sony Open, which is a golf tournament, you know, because of the Navy and everything like that. Met some friends that eventually led me to meeting people in the mortgage industry. Um, that owned the mortgage company. And I remembered back when I bought my very first house at 22 years old, I think. And the experience that I had with my real estate agent, my mortgage lender, and, and, and how kind of lost I felt during that entire process, 
you know, being, being in Hawaii and being in the Navy, I was getting out and I was like, I've got to find the job that keeps me in Hawaii, right? Keeps me on the Island. Um, my background in the Navy was nuclear engineering. And so not a lot of jobs in, in Hawaii for, for a nuclear, nuclear engineer. And so when I met, um, met these guys in the mortgage industry and thinking back on it, you know, my, uh, another degree in finance, I was like, you know, I can do this. I love math. This is something that I could be passionate about and getting in and helping people. And so I'm probably one of the very few people that got into the mortgage space intentionally, right? Like I wanted to get into the mortgage space and I wanted to be a loan officer. Well, you're definitely not the only one who said I was getting a mortgage and the process was painful. Uh, like that, that story, I mean, it's like the, it's the mortgage tech founder story of. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. So many people, they're like, it, we can do it so much better. And so, you know, I saw this as kind of a double opportunity and um, to basically stay in Hawaii. And so I started as a loan officer for a mortgage bank, Colorado Federal Savings Bank uh, in Hawaii and ended up leaving Hawaii for various reasons, moved, moved here to Maryland and continued working for the mortgage bank and doing various jobs within the mortgage bank. Um, the owner of the mortgage bank owned an LOS tech firm, PC Lender. Started working, doing that, met people through conferences and user groups at Freddie Mac, got recruited to go to Freddie Mac in order to, you know, work on Loan Prospector and the underwriting engine. Worked with people at Freddie Mac that eventually landed at my next company, Overture Technologies, recruited me to go to Overture. From Overture, the person that hired me at Overture, Peter Carroll, was one of the co-founders there, left Overture to go to this new federal government startup uh, called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I ended up leaving Overture. Pete called me up and was like, hey, we can use some some industry expertise at the CFPB. So that's kind of how I got the transition you know, from mortgage lending, mortgage technology to now a federal regulator you know, running the regulatory implementation group along with Lisa Applegate. And, you know, that really kind of kicked off and I think skyrocketed my career to help me get to where I am today. And so that was a really, I think the catalyst was being able to get into the CFPB, working in the mortgage markets and that liaison between industry and the regulatory environment. I was going back through some of our coverage from the the early mid 2010s. Um, and I, I came across an article that mentioned you and it said, uh, Brian Webster, who played a critical role in development of several key policies at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, including the truth and in lending RESPA integrated disclosure forms is leaving the CFPB for Wells Fargo. So I guess this was the announcement article, but, um, talk about like, what mark do you think you left on the CFPB or like, where is the, is there a, a single like accomplishment or experience or, um, anything that like you look back upon that said that this was defining? Oh my God, there's several. Um, but probably the most impactful actions that, that, we're taking are ones that industry never saw or never had any idea that was going on. So I think I did as much good keeping things coming out of the bureau 
than helping items actually leaving the bureau. For instance, you know, ideas that were coming up that, you know, are well intended from a federal regulator from the perspective of consumer financial protection, but playing a role to kind of explain the impact. Like if you go down this path, here is what's going to actually happen in the industry and playing a role of, of explaining the, 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 the negative impacts and consequences that are going to occur um, and being able to, you know, be in the middle of the sausage making to have those conversations before it even comes out, you know, to me is probably my personally is going to be the, the, the biggest accomplishments, but you're know, going back just, just establishing the, the engagement and the, and the relationship that a federal regulator can have with the industry, with their regulated entities. And the fact that conversations are good conversations are beneficial and that those are needed two way discussions so that those that are making the laws can understand what's happened, what impacts the laws are going to have, what unintended consequences, but also, you know, being able to communicate back to my industry colleagues that if you want to see change, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to lobby, how you need to advocate. This is a story that you need to tell in order to convince those that are making the laws that here's the direction that we both need to go down together in order to reach that common end goal, which is, you know, a highly functional compliant industry that's delivering products and financial services to the consumer, you know, at a fair market value uh, and, and in a, a responsible and reliant way, you know, the, the coming out with the title 14 rules and, and the, the kind of the training and the information that we were able to, to communicate, you know, establishing, you know, the regulatory work groups of, you know, regular check-ins with the industry as they're going through the, the implementation of these rules, being able to pull those questions back in, get answers and get it back to them in a timely manner so that we can continue to support the implementation of all of these regulations. You know, TRID, the Truth and uh, Lending RESPA Integrated Disclosure Act, was probably the biggest regulatory change the industry has gone through. And being able to be there kind of lockstep with them to help through this extremely difficult time is, is probably one thing that I look back on uh, the fondest as it relates to really kind of, you know, the impact and, and the public impact that we were able to have, you know, all of us, you know, that were kind of working on that, you know, inside the CFPB during that, during that time frame. Is it a complicated relationship between industry participants and, and a regulator, especially a new regulatory body? And I mean, it sounds like what you're alluding to is like some of the, the things that were public facing or industry facing were impactful, but potentially not as impactful as the things that didn't happen. And it had the industry having a voice in the, in the CFPB having some industry folks from industry like yourself helped develop a framework and that was not as punitive as it could have been if we were just looking at policymakers, looking at the industry from the outside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I can remember having conversations because, you know, not only within the markets division, not only did we focus on the regulatory implementation, right. Of, 
here's the rules. This is what you need to do in order to implement. You know, we were elbows deep in the sausage making, right? And, and development, you know, the proposed rule for TRID had already been out when I joined the Bureau. But I was there in the final rulemaking and really being able to, you know, get it to the point that it was at when it was released, even though industry probably wasn't, you know, super happy with it and it probably could have been better. But, you know, I do honestly feel like that we got it to the best place that we could. But we're also engaged in supervision and enforcement in the fair lending groups, right, of the kind of the quote unquote police force of the regulatory body, you know being kind of that advisor into that group, you know, I, I took my role in separation of duties very seriously it's because I still wanted to be able to go out and engage directly with industry partners and hear from them and them to be honest and have honest conversations with me and take that information back inside the Bureau when it related to policy making to ensure that we're making the right policy decisions and responsible policy decisions, you know, I never, ever, ever, ever would take any of that information over to kind of the policing force and say, Hey, guess what, you know, Clayton's doing over here. You know what he told me and in confidence, right. You should go talk to him because then it would completely demolish the trust and faith I was able to establish across the industry. But being that advisor in, in the supervision roles would be, Yes, what the lender is telling you is true. That is accurate. That is the truth. And being able to kind of confirm practices, confirm business reasons, confirm technology limitations that, you know, supervised entities were explaining back into the regulator to get them to understand that this is actually how the business operates. This is how it works. This is how they're dependent upon technology vendors and um, and how the whole infrastructure works to really show them that, you know, everyone is not, you know, breaking the law on purpose and everyone is not nefarious in, in what they're trying to do. And everyone's not trying to cheat consumers and really kind of, you know, providing that kind of litmus test back into the regulatory body of it, you know, to really highlight the fact that there's a lot of great people out there. There's a lot of strong people out there that are out here doing this for the right reasons and doing it correctly and legally and in compliance, you know, a few bad apples, you know, don't need to kind of ruin the whole, whole bushel, you know, as the saying goes. So at this point in your career, it doesn't sound like you've ever had to sharpen up the resume and, and go hunt for a job. You've been, your network has uh, helped pull you forward and been tapped for new opportunities. So how did the transition from the Bureau back into industry happen? And, and what were you looking for in that next step? Or what was the inflection point that um, encouraged you to, that it was time to take a step forward? The counterpart that I had uh, at Wells Fargo uh, a gentleman, Raghu Kakamana, who is, you know, brilliant, um, loving to death, was basically the industry liaison inside Wells Fargo that I worked with very closely at, at CFPB. He took a new role inside Wells Fargo, which opened up basically that job. And eventually that's the job that I ended up taking at, at Wells Fargo. Raghu's boss basically hounded me for about six months before I finally said yes, kind of like my I guess my high school girlfriend, she finally said yes to the prom after lots of begging, I guess. But the, the catalyst really for me to make the decision to, to leave the Bureau, I loved almost every day of what I did at the Bureau. 
but a majority of the mortgage rulemaking was coming to an end. You know, TRID was going into effect on, you know, October 3rd, 2015. The HUMDA rulemaking was in the final stages. I'd worked very closely with the team internally to try to, you know, get that into a, a, a strong position. And so I saw the ability of innovation and impact that I could have on the industry inside CFPB was starting to slow down. You know, it was starting to come to an end and it was going to be moving more into kind of a maintenance mode, which is attractive for a lot of people. But when the opportunity, you know, came across my desk to transition over to Wells, I thought it was just a good timing, right? You know, the Bureau was moving less into this new innovative startup and becoming a mature federal regulator. And, you know, Wells was still doing a lot of great things at the time. And so I just thought it was a, uh, the timing worked out perfectly to allow me to move over and to continue to have an impact on the industry at the time with the largest originator and largest lender in the market. And felt like if I was going to continue to have a positive impact in, in any type of role on industry, on you know, policy and regulations, financial reform on new innovative, you know, items that were hitting the industry like Ron and e-closings, Wells Fargo gave me kind of an ideal platform to be able to do that from. And and it was, you know, for, for four years. So let's, you brought up the topic of Ron and e-closing. So let's, let's fast forward a little bit to the role you play today, serving as president of Notary Cam. How did some of the, the learnings that you had from the CFPB and your opportunity to take those learnings and put them into action at Wells Fargo can influence your next few steps that paved the road to Notary Cam? Yeah, it's a, a great question because it really did. I mean, it, it really started at CFPB when we did the e-closing pilot you know, the no before you owe initiative. You know, I always joke that I remember when it started, it started in a conversation in director Cordray's office. You know, he brought a few of us in there and asked the question, why is there a two inch stack of paperwork put in front of a consumer, you know, at the closing table, you know, director Cordray is a brilliant man. He has a very dry and intelligent sense of humor. And so when I responded that it's due to all of the federal regulations that we put onto the industry, he did not find it as humorous as I was hoping that he would. And so Brian then got the assignment from director Cordray to figure out why. And that's really kind of where, uh, where it started the catalyst. Those that we engaged with would remember, we called it whack the stack. That was the effort that we went through to try to figure out how to reduce the number of documents in, in the closing stack. The paper companies, the doc storage companies loved you. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. I joke. So that was the time I started selling all of my stock in Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> but what we learned, and this carries forward to today in so many different aspects. But what we learned was, one, the federal government really didn't control that many documents in the closing package, right? There's not that many promulgated forms, you know, the LE, the CD type of things, but a majority of the documents that you see in a closing package or any type of loan package aren't dictated by federal government or necessarily state regulations. Some of them are, but not all of them. And so we started thinking about what is it that we're trying to solve for? We're trying to solve for the amount of information that's being delivered to a consumer at the closing table all at once. Think of a better way of delivering information to a consumer. You know, documents typically exist because 
a law, a rule, a regulation says that you lender must give this information to a consumer. And so the lender prints it on a piece of paper and hands it to the consumer and makes them sign it. Not because they have to, but because if they need to prove that they did that in the future, they have it in their hand. So coming from Freddie Mac, coming from Overture and moving kind of that digital application online in the beginning of the process, why can't we do it towards the end of the process? And so going through this e-closing pilot really began to learn all of the challenges related to closing, pulling many different players together all at once to try to reach this one moment in time. Um, the coordination of five different entities to bring all the information together to give to a closing agent to get to a consumer at the signing table. So that's really kind of where, you know, my passion started for coming up with a better way. You know, we can do this through digital closings. Why can't we? I e-sign everything from my life insurance policies to paying for my groceries at the grocery store. You know, there's got to be a way to apply some of that capability into this more complex, you know, mortgage space, which I've been working towards ever since, right? Implemented digital mortgage program at Wells Fargo, kicked off purchasing e-mortgages and e-notes through correspondent retail, did it at Freedom. And so saw what it took inside a lender, saw what it took with all of our partners from the technology providers, but also in the title and settlement space and what they need to be able to do and bring to the table in order to help facilitate and make this e-closing a, you know, success. So when, you know, the opportunity to come over to notary cam presented itself to me, it was like the culmination of everything that I've been working towards and the ideas and philosophies that I've been trying to push in order to advance electronic closing adoption. What I mean by that is traditionally it's been lender driven. It's the lender's docs. It's the lender's loan. Um, I, I've been looking at it a little bit differently in the fact that the title companies closes the transaction. It's their pen and their paper. They're the ones sitting with the consumer at the table. They're the ones that are coordinating all of the components to come together at the very end. Why can't we empower the title and, and closing community to bring this technology to bear and empower them to one to deliver this new type of service, this, this e-close service. And Stuart has kind of, you know, adopted that methodology and that, in that thought process. Um, I had the conversation when I was at Wells back in 2015 with Stuart about going down this path and this approach. We did it at Wells. It was a success. Um, we're doing it freedom. Hasn't really gotten off the ground uh, since I left, but there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, the approach is, is proven to be successful and being able to come to notary cam and be a part of Stuart to really kind of take that approach and, and, and deliver it into the title and settlement community and to empower them to improve their toolbox so that they can go to their lender customers and say, I can be your digital closing solution for you, I think that's going to be kind of a, a, a strong way to improve adoption, especially, you know, through this year as, as lenders and, and all organizations are looking to, you know, cut, cut costs and, and improve some efficiencies in their operations. 
Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles will bring together the nation's top residential real estate CEOs, presidents, and C-level leadership teams to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's GOE is at Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th until the 21st. Learn more and register your spot on the events page at realtrends.com. And we can't wait to see you in Austin. So if we rewind to that that period of time when you're at the CFPB in a in another universe, an, al- an alternate storyline, uh, Rick Triola is founding Notary Cam in in 2014 and beginning the path of building in an on demand online notary service, and you know had the the advantages of going through the the NARREACH program and access to the um, second. Century Ventures um, cohort. Uh, so, how how did that path proceed over the the six years from 2014 to to 2020? Ultimately, when when Stewart acquired the business, and I know this all proceeds proceeds you, but I imagine you get a little bit of backstory as you step into your role as president. Yeah, and you know, and I've known Rick since you know he really kind of started Notary Cam, and over the years, and especially after you know coming on board, he never. Let me forget the fact that, you know, Notary Cam tried to get into the CFPBZ closing pilot and we wouldn't let them in. <laughs> and the only reason was, is, you know, we want to focus on the little piece around just getting a signature and, you know, not taking on the, the notarization laws and the remote notarization laws and the complexities associated with that. We were, we were a federal government agency that had very little bandwidth to understand the complexities of that. So, um, yeah, he didn't let me forget that. So Rick, you know, before Notary Cam, he had a company called Settleware, which is basically like an e-sign service as well. And so when the the, the Ron laws were passed, I think in 2011, um, he saw an opportunity to really kind of take this to the next level uh, and began pursuing that. While he had success in in real estate and mortgage, his primary focus was outside of mortgage, right? And like Notary Cam. Half of our business is non-real estate. Our largest customer is non-real estate. And so that, I think, helped him grow the organization and grow it kind of organically, right? You know, he was part of some of these great kind of incubator labs and you know, great organizations to kind of help him grow the business. But, you know, he didn't go out and get, you know, VC money and, you know, private equity money and funding and, and be able to you know, hire 500 people, you know, he kind of did it um, by the bootstraps, which, you know, a lot of respect for what Rick was able to accomplish. And so he just, you know, the slow churn of, you know, just going through one customer at a time and delivering, you know, a high quality of service. And that's really kind of what they focused on. You know, they, Notary Cam is one of the very few RON vendors in the space that, you know, majority of them license software, but we also provide a full notary service. 
So we have a pool of licensed notaries that you send us your transaction and we'll close it via Ron for you. So that kind of unique business model allowed him to really kind of get into different organizations and then slowly moving as kind of a fast follower through real estate and gaining, you know, some title companies, gaining some, some lenders uh, under his belt to really kind of grow, grow the organization. Stewart actually approached him, Rick and, you know, the notary cam leadership team had been kind of contemplating, you know, going to get some funding and finding some big partners and, and kind of interviewed with, with some, some larger investors. But, you know, when Rick tells the story, none of it really kind of felt right. You know, none of it felt like it was the right home for notary cam and kind of the philosophy that he had built the people that he had brought on board. And so, when the opportunity with Stuart came on board, he said it kind of felt like home, right? You know, Stuart's mentality of, you know, they've, they've acquired numerous companies, right? I think 17 in, in the past two years or 18 or something like that. And really taking a, a very strategic approach of, of stitching these companies together and bringing notary cam and, you know, for the, for the end piece with the closing and being on all the, the Ron solution really kind of fit into that overall strategy. And it was a very logical acquisition for Stuart and, and Rick saw the opportunity there. Um, and so it was just a great fit and, you know, and it brings, brings us into an organization where, you know, we're able to work with our, you know, channel partners across Stuart and direct operations, agency operations, Stuart lender services to really kind of take this, this product and technology, um, out through all of those clients, including, you know, our sister companies like with informative research and cloud Virga, you know, um, certified and in, in the appraisal prop tech and USA appraisals to, to be able to deliver that kind of comprehensive solution. And so, you know, he, you know, he just kind of struggled and, and, and churned along and, and building it brick by brick. And, um, you know, the coming into the Stewart family and was able to kind of get everything, kind of situated to the point where he's like, I think I'm going to actually enjoy my retirement, uh, enjoy the fruits of my labor. And so, you know, um, a colleague of mine within Stewart approached me and uh, kind of the spring of, of 2022 and, and said, we might have an opening that we think that you would be a good fit for. Would you be interested? So that kind of kicked off the journey and got me started at Notary Cam in, in August of this past year. That's, that's excellent. So I thought the phrase you used on stitch together with kind of the broader Stuart, um, acquired company group, uh, was, it was interesting. And I, you know, as a you know relatively MA focused operator, uh, every deal has a little bit of a different flavor, but you have to think about how does this fit into the overall business strategy? Is it a, is it a, is, is it a new product? Is it a new division? Is it a feature? Um, and how does that impact the way we integrate the team and business operations? how would you categorize the way that you, you work with, or how would you like further define that stitch together approach with, with cloud Virga and informative research and in the, in the broader Stuart business? It's been very strategic. So Stuart, you know, Fred Epperson, the CEO, very pragmatic in, in his approach and acquiring and Brad Ray, my boss is, is big into kind of into this process of bringing the right components together. And it's not just, bringing a component in to place it into an ecosystem as a product offering, right. To fill in a gap. 
It's also, how can I take that product offering either through their technology, through their process, through their people and expand it into other areas of the business? And this is, I think this is where you're going because, you know, we're just one component. We provide remote notarization services, right? And so quickly after notary cam coming into it, there's another acquisition that Stuart made called signature closers. They're a mobile notary network. And so Stuart created this initiative that we call remote choice and remote choice allows a user to basically pick how do they want to close their transaction? Do they want to come into a Stuart office? Do they want to um, have it be a mail away? Do they want a mobile notary to show up through signature closers? Do they want to come online and do it remotely through notary cam? And so, you know, very quickly, we've been able to kind of piece some of these things, technologies and companies together to create these new offerings. When it comes to kind of Cloud Verga, so Stuart has taken Cloud Verga's technology to deliver some B2C components and B2B portals for their various kind of title divisions. We also see that as an opportunity to kind of expand the notary cam product. So again, we typically we are that remote notarization component, right? We tie into other technology vendors and other partners like a Doc Magic and DocuTech and so on and so forth, that we are a supplement to their kind of overall e-closing solution. But as we've been working closely with Cloud Verga, we're now bringing kind of that component into Cloud Verga's product offering to supplement their tool. But we're also bringing Cloud Verga capabilities into notary cam to actually expand the notary cam product offering to be go beyond and grow just more than just the remote notarization services so being able to provide e-note generation and e-vault connectivity and electronic closings you know e-sign capabilities for the borrower to deliver kind of a product and service that our customers are asking for and so it's been extremely complimentary right? Both ways, right? So we're helping build out Cloud Virgo. They're helping build us out with informative research, you know, on the verification components. You know, we're looking at ways of leveraging their capabilities in verification waterfalls for when consumers are coming into our application. Now, do those necessarily meet the, you know, state and regulatory requirements for MFA and borrower identification? In some states, yes. Most states, no. But, you know, it's a way that we're able to leverage kind of partner companies and their technology to to supplement what we're able to deliver to our customers. So it's been a fantastic uh, relationship. I've been here six months, but we've already made some great progress. And in other organizations that I've been in that have had these type of acquisitions and, and mergers, I've never been in an organization that has been so seamless and has been complementary to each other in a way that we've been able to make such progress in such a very small uh, amount of time in, in such a with such a complementary product suite and capability suite and still being able to operate seamlessly is there anything you've learned about 
the business functions and the team members that you're dedicated to maintaining inside of the notary cam business unit versus like shared services you might have with other Stuart businesses. And I, and I'll share, like, I I'm thinking about that from, from my vantage point, we, we acquired Altos research in in December and uh, have, we're, we're building toward two distinct sales organizations and two distinct like product and dev teams. And, um, and it's like, it, I, be lying if I wasn't saying like, is there a future where we have a singular like dev and product infrastructure, or does it make sense to maintain um, dedicated teams that are focused on a specific product, but encouraging collaboration and encouraging seamless building? So I, I'm curious what you've kind of learned about the functions that you think are incredibly important to keep distinct inside of your business unit. Have you been talking to my boss? Lately, um, because these are very conversations that have been going on just the past two weeks. And so it, it's a very timely, timely conversation. So I hope it comes across. These are the things I'm thinking about. This is fantastic. It's a great question because it's something that we are focused on to ensure, one, that we, we take advantage of economies of scale, right? And the shared services as much as we can without giving up our independence and, and, and our own identity, right? So HR, accounting, finance, legal, all of that stuff we've rolled into in the steward, right? And so that's been a huge benefit uh, of having those capabilities being provided by Stuart, right? Takes it off of our kind of plate and I don't have to worry about it. Product and technology, as you're talking about this, so specifically like with Cloud Vergen and Formative Research that have very kind of mature and developed um, dev teams and product management teams and philosophies, you know, we see advantages there at least from management and the philosophy of, of how to manage product, how to develop product and how to, to roll out uh, and deploy product. So we're balancing of how much of that can we combine, right? And so to your, to your question about you know, distinct products or, or shared services when product management, the thought process that we're having is how much can we roll up into kind of a single shared services organization around developing product management so that you're getting a single focus and a single process where you begin to get the separation is in the distinct teams that are delivering a specific product, right? And so you, you keep the separation down in the individual products, but it rolls back up into a larger part of the organization so that you can have, you know, consistency and methodologies uh, of building, developing, and, and deploying as opposed to everybody's doing it their own way, right? Because what that does is it gives us the ability to to move back and forth and to take advantage of, like, Cloud Verga has got some resources that we can grab or we can push over there in, in the ebb and flow of development cycles. Whereas if we were completely independent, it wouldn't give us that flexibility. So it's kind of the approach that we're, we want to get to. Um, and again, this has been very, you know, early stages of the conversation, but, you know, ideally, you know, getting, getting to that point, I think would be advantageous for everybody. As far as, keeping our identity and what is unique. I think our customer service and, you know, what's unique to us is around our notary operations and our notary pool and the notary services that we're delivering to our customers. 
that's unique. We're not going to move that anywhere. We can't combine that with anybody else because no one else does that. So that's very distinct kind of notary cam. And it's only going to be notary cam and always going to be notary cam, you know, everywhere else that we're able to combine and, and share, you know, I'm, I'm very much into that approach because if I can get someone else to pay for it, I'd be happy to have someone else pay for it. Yeah. So is there anything you've kind of learned about prophesizing like the notary cam capabilities or prophesizing e-closing and remote online notarization kind of within Stuart? So like being part of a larger traditional title company who is you know market facing with a, a large percentage of the lenders and real estate brokers and agents across the country. How do you leverage the broader team from informative research to Cloud Virga? Like, how do you leverage your partners and other business unit leaders to prophesize the story and ensure consistency across the organization? So, um, twofold, right? From a marketing perspective, you know, developing kind of the common theme around, around Stuart and Stuart's digital framework that they are able to deliver not only directly to their customers. Uh, to their lender customers, but also their title agent customers through our agency business in Terra. So, you know, and again, it going it goes back to kind of stitching all of that together, right? Stitching it to, to the point where, you know, we can bring all of this together, but they're also independent services. Um, we've, we've had our first success. We signed our first contract in December where a client basically signed a contract with everything. You know, they, they, the entire framework, they signed up, they signed up with Cloud Virga, they signed up with information research, they signed up with our steward valuation intelligence. Um, we were not yet at the table, so they didn't sign up with notary cam. And so I didn't let Marvin forget that. Um, but you know, it, it is working. So kind of creating that, that common theme and that digital framework of steward being able to take it to market is, is really helping. Kind of, as you say, prophesize that across the organization. I'm lucky that I don't need to sell the idea to anyone within Stewart. They wouldn't have bought Notary Cam if they didn't believe in the idea. Um, so that's a that's a battle I don't have to fight. Uh, the other areas of advantage that that I have within Stewart is every single sell side transaction should be done via RON. That's a no brainer. Right. And so going out to our direct operations and like, why are you not using us, at least for this part of the transaction? You know, that's something that very focused on going starting at the top of the house and and getting down through all of the, our group uh, vice presidents to getting that message out to the direct operations. Um, the other advantage that we're getting that we're able to partner with from Stuart is through our Stuart lender services. So SLS. Um that means I don't necessarily need a sales team to go after lender business. I have the Stuart lender services sales team and arming them with information related to notary cam, arming them with information related to cloud Virga and formative research and all of the tools that they basically have in their back pocket to sell Stuart to a lender is part of the package that we are delivering up and empowering the sales team. So that's, to me, that's a, a big advantage. And again, all of these little things added up to, you know, painting the picture of why I, I wanted to come here and, and, you know, take on this role 
is because I saw all of these tools sitting in front of us to be able to take advantage of, right? So I don't need to focus on the lender business. I've got people that are doing that for us. I can go out and I can focus on the title agent business. I can focus on the servicing business, the loss mitigation business. So other areas that Stuart isn't necessarily a strong player in is where we can focus and I can, you know, leverage my Stuart partners from a sales perspective in order to focus on the areas that, that they have strong inroads and strong contacts and relationships with, because, you know, the last thing I want to do is have four different salespeople from all within the same parent organization, hitting up a single lender, trying to sell different services, right? That's, that's more damaging than, than beneficial. So consolidating that through a single point of contact, a single representative that can help bring all of us together into a single, single prospect. Um, is kind of the approach that we're taking. And, you know, we already have a couple of big wins associated with that, you know, this early on. So does that mean you have, like, you'll have a, a single account director or senior account exec, whatever the title is, who manages a lender relationship, but there might be a, an SME or an expert from the different business units who can, who can plug in and support different parts of the conversation, because it's got to be challenging for the relationship owner, the, the account director to, carry the full expertise of the product suite from business end to end. Yeah. I mean, that that's just not fair uh, to the account owner, right? I've had a role where I was the account owner, right? And no matter how much I wanted to, there's no way that you can know it all. But yeah, so that's the approach. And it's a single person that's going to own the relationship. And their job is to make sure that they bring the right experts to the table, regardless of the conversation, whether we're trying to win new business grow existing business or just maintaining the relationship from a customer service perspective. Right. And so, you know, our customer service team, you know, we've, we've started aligning kind of their lender customers and our direct lender customers to those that align with, with Stuart uh, lender accounts to kind of start moving in that direction so that, Let's say Natalie that's supporting, you know, a Webster bank is working through George that owns a relationship for Stuart as opposed to, you know, hitting them up directly. Right. So that's the exact approach that we're taking. Well, if you're selling a Webster bank, you gotta bring in Brian Webster to help uh yeah. facilitate the conversation. Sometimes they have to. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I'm happy to join. Brian. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I could get, we could, I could go on for hours. I feel like there's so much we, we didn't get into, but that just might open the door for us to, to do this again. I'd love to. And as you can tell, Clayton, I like the gab. So happy to. And you know, I'm very honored and privileged to be invited to do this. And so I've always had tons of respect for Housing Wire and for you and what you guys do and, and how you deliver information and the information that you are delivering into the industry and the benefits that you bring. And so uh, I love the partnership and, and happy to do it anytime you want. And I appreciate it. And this is one of the first episodes in a while we didn't like spend a lot of time talking about the the housing market, which um, you know may, maybe is a good thing right now. But uh, I, I wish you luck and momentum and success as you charge into into twenty twenty three. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate that, Clayton. Thank you very much. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you. Thank you.